Father, I was reading the other day in Psalms and uh, came across 134. And just that one line that says, The Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. That takes a lot of stress off. Uh, we don't exist by chance. We're not accidents. We're not a result of time and chance. We are a result of your plan before the foundations of the world. David said, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. One of the most amazing scriptures in all the Bible. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. When he was in the womb, you fashioned him as you did us. When we were actually just a sperm and an egg, you knew us. We weren't formed. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written in the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. That is an incredible statement. So no one in here is an accident. No one in here is here by chance. We exist by your will. You determined the moment of our uh, conception, our birth. It's appointed for a man once to die, Hebrews says, so you've appointed the, the day that we die. Until then, we're immortal. We can't die. Doesn't mean we can't get hurt. Doesn't mean we can't get injured. Doesn't mean we, we can't have things happen that should take us out, but they don't take us out because Psalm 68 says, to the Lord belongs escapes from death because you will accomplish what concerns me. That's true of every one of us in this room. There's a reason we're, we're alive. We don't begin to really find it until Christ breaks into our lives and pulls us to himself. And then, then things start coming together because we've, we've been given a new life and a new heart. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away. All things become new. And uh, then we start the journey to become mature men. And we're on it until we take our dying breath. And when we take that dying breath, it's promotion. To die is gain. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and to never suffer again, ever. You wipe away all tears forever. So it takes the stress off that you will accomplish what concerns us. You know what's best, we don't. We would like to avoid all suffering, but you don't allow that. There are lessons to be taught in the valley of suffering that we would learn nowhere else. David said, it was good for me that I was afflicted. We can all say that. An easy life, an easy life does nothing for us. It does nothing for our souls. We become spoiled. We become flabby. We begin to think we must be special because everything goes our way. We get proud. So, Father, even in the difficulties of life, which you oversee, there is a purpose. We're not always in difficulty, but there are seasons that have a beginning, a middle, and they have an end. And we come out better from those seasons as a result of being in them. We're better men coming out than we were going in. Now, Lord, these are truths from your word that we need to be reminded of. You've been so gracious and kind and merciful to us. Tonight, as we study your word, I pray that you would give us perspective. It's easy to lose perspective. It's easy for us to get out of balance. Like, every once in a while, 
we got to take our cars in and align the front ends because they get they start wobbling on us. We start wobbling sometimes. We get out of alignment because we're not thinking straight. We're not thinking biblically. So we're going down the road of life. We hit certain potholes that throw us. We're not sure what you're doing. Align us tonight, we pray. Get us in sync. And as you do, you'll encourage us and lift our hearts and lift our spirits. Put courage in our hearts, we ask tonight, for every man. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. This semester, we've been working through this book I did 25 years ago called Point Man, because it's a book about being a spiritual leader, being a husband and a father, and uh, taking that responsibility seriously. And we've been breaking it down. What does it look like? What are the practical implications? So we've just been working it through. We've never done that in all the years we've done this study. Uh, I've been taking pretty much everything in sequence. Now tonight, uh, I'm going to cover something that I did not cover in Point Man. Uh, I wish that I had have covered it in Point Man. Uh, about 10 years after I wrote Point Man, I wrote another book called Anchor Man, and I put this material in Anchor Man. I wish it had gone in Point Man. So we're going to throw it in tonight. And it's based around the events of Joshua chapter 3 and 4. So let's turn there. It's a... Uh, it's really a remarkable passage, this event in Joshua. It is, it, it's something that occurred after years and years of waiting. It shouldn't have taken that long for it to have happened. Uh, you recall when Moses led them out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery, he was taking them into the promised land. You recall the events of the unbelief of the uh, spies. Uh, in, in Numbers chapter 12, they appoint, God said, pick 12 men, one from each tribe, each one a leader among them. And, they, and God said, have those guys go on a reconnaissance mission. And th they did. They were gone for 40 days to check out the land of the Ites. The promised land promised to Abraham uh, had been inhabited by the Ites while the people of Israel were in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And the Ites were the most powerful people on the face of the earth. They had all the technological developments. They had iron chariots. They had massive cities, walled cities. They were, um, they were, they were incredibly prosperous and affluent. Uh, they, uh, they, there were giants in the land, physical giants in the land. And they went up, did the reconnaissance mission. You recall this. They come back after 40 days, and they said, it's amazing land. They brought back a cluster of grapes, took two guys to carry them, one cluster. And they said, it's an amazing land. It's a land of milk and honey. Uh, but then they said, there are giants in the land, and we can't take these guys. Ten of the 12 said that. Joshua and Caleb didn't say that, but 10 of the spies said that. Now, give me the names of the 10 spies who said that. <laughs> give me the name of one of the 10 spies. Steve. <laughs> Boy. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, we have some bitter men in this room. We have men obviously under the judgment of God or about to experience it. <laughs> Probably, I'm sure someone was named Steve. If, I mean, that actually fits. Uh, we don't know their names. Their names are given. Nobody remembers these guys because they were a bunch of losers. Now, they were called leaders. They were leaders. They were handpicked because they were leaders. But they didn't have a heart for God. They didn't have a heart for God. Joshua and Caleb, we remember. We still name kids today. There are guys in here named Joshua. There are guys in here named Caleb. Some of you guys have sons, Joshua, Caleb, grandsons, Joshua, Caleb. Why? We remember Joshua and Caleb because they were leaders who had a heart for God, and they said, hey, look it, hold on here. Don't panic. If God delivered us from Egypt, if he took us through the Red Sea, you remember that a few weeks ago we went through the Red Sea? You remember that, guys? If he sent ten plagues and delivered us from Pharaoh, and you're telling me God can't take the giants? 
There's, see, here's the thing about the Christian life. There are always giants. We're always dealing with giants. There's always a giant that, and what does the giant do? Intimidates you, scares you. But the greatest giant, and we all deal with giants, and some giants are bigger than others, the greatest giant is God. This is why we are to fear God and not man. Uh, they forgot God. They forgot his power. They forgot his works. Because of the unbelief of the ten, Israel has to wander, and they do wander for 40 years. And everyone over 20 dies. And so now they're finally going into the promised land in Joshua 3. Now to get to the promised land, they got to cross the Jordan River. And so we pick it up, and, and, and there's been a change of leadership. Moses has died. Now things have been handed off to Joshua. This is the context. Um, and if you start in Joshua 3, they're getting ready. They're going to prepare. He tells them, in three days, we're going across. The Ark of the Covenant is going to go ahead. Uh, let's just pick it up at um, verse 11. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. And I want to say something here. They're going to cross the Jordan River. Now, some of you guys have had the privilege of going to Israel, and when we see the Jordan River in Israel, it's just, you know, a nice meandering creek. Sometimes it's deep enough. Uh, some of you have been to that site just south of the Sea of Galilee, and, and you can do baptisms there because it's deep enough. But there are times as it meanders down all the way to the Dead Sea uh, that it's even not that deep, you see? Um, from the text, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but um, if you look at verse 15, I'm making a point here, because they're, they're, the, the, the priests are going to carry the ark into the water. Uh, it says, And the feet of the priests carrying the ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of the harvest. Uh, they're, they're crossing in springtime during the grain harvest, which is March and April. Now, here's what happens at this time of year. In certain sections, and right where they're crossing, there are, there are high cliffs, and, and there is just a very, very uh, small valley, and then you have the cliffs. And what happens? The Jordan River, uh, here, here's what happens. This nice little meandering stream at springtime can be 150 feet deep and a mile wide. Interesting God would have them cross at this time of year. <laughs> I love that. You know why? Because that nice, normal, quiet little river is now a raging giant. And we're always facing a giant. Why couldn't they cross in August? When pretty much the snowfall and the snow melt has pretty much dissipated. No. Can't do that. We're going, we're going March, early April. 150 feet deep, mile wide, and they're camped right by it for three days staring at it. That's got God all over it. Because we are to walk not by sight, but by what? Faith. How the heck are we going to cross that? Two million people. I got my wife, I got my kids, got my grandkids. How are we going to cross that? Uh, let's just stop here for a minute and ask a question. So what's the giant you're thinking about right now? I mean, there's no possible way. There's just no way. There's just no way. That's a giant. Okay. So that's their giant, is the river. It's springtime. So let's, let's just jump into it here. Um, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord and all the earth is crossing over ahead of you. Uh, the, I'm sorry, I didn't read that right. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Now then take for yourselves 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe. That's significant. 
it's almost like the Lord is saying, hey, uh, let's try this 12-man thing one more time. And let's see if we can't get it right this time. Because 40 years ago, your fathers couldn't get this right. But once again, let's choose 12 men, and they've got a task. Verse 12, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe. It shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priest who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan will be cut off, and the waters which are flowing down from above will stand in one heap. What's going to happen here is the Red Sea all over again, 40 years later. So when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan and the feet of the priest carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water. It's, it's, it's this deal. It, you know, a lot of times you're going into a pool or rivers, maybe and you just kind of check out the temp. You know this? That's what they did. And as soon as they just dipped, what happens? The waters which are flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those which were flowing down, and it gives the geographical descriptions. Um, that water was cut off and stood back 18 miles. That's what happened, just like the Red Sea. So the people crossed opposite Jericho. And the priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood, stood firm, watch this, on dry ground. Just as when they crossed the Red Sea, a lot of times when we're facing giants, you know, we're trying to think through every, every detail and we're trying to, you ever stay up at night thinking through details? Oh my gosh, what is this? What about this? What, oh my gosh. What about this one? What about this one? It'll drive you nuts. Trying to think of every possible thing so that you're prepared if it comes up when you're facing some kind of crisis or some kind of giant. You know, why don't you just go on to sleep? Because God's in the details. The devil is not in the details. God is in the details. And when they crossed, when God opened the Red Sea, they crossed on dry land. So when they got across the Red Sea, they weren't doing this. The wife wasn't saying, hey, clean off those sandals. Because there was no mud. Although th that, that bed had been drenched with water for how many, how, many, how many decades, how many centuries? Who knows? But when God opened it, it was dry, immediately dry. Same thing here. They crossed once again. There was no mud. They crossed on dry land because God always handles the details. So eat a cheeseburger. Relax. He's got you covered. This is, God, is, God is thorough. He doesn't do anything just halfway, does he? <laughs> this is great. Don't you love this stuff? This is the greatest stuff in the world. Knowing God. Studying God. You know what theology is? It's the study of God. I don't like theology. Yeah, you do. You love it. Your stress level just dropped 90%, didn't it? Because we just studied a fact about God. They crossed on dry land, and we're thinking through, I got this, I'm facing this, I got this. He knows that. Hey, he knows stuff you've never thought about. You've got dangers around you you're not even aware of. Start thinking on that. But the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Right? Yeah. So they crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. Two million of them. They all got across. Now, when all the nation, 4, chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves 12 men from the people, one man from each tribe. Here we go again. And command them, saying, Take up for yourselves 12 stones from here, out of the middle of the Jordan, from where the priest's feet are standing firm, and carry them over with you and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. So Joshua called the 12 men whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross again to the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. 
Each of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. So that's what they did. Um, if we read all of chapter 4, let me go ahead and just kind of highlight it. Uh, it appears not only did they have a, it appears there were two heaps of stones, two, uh, two piles of stones. If you look at verse 8 and you look at verse 19, these correspond. Thus the sons of Israel did as Joshua commanded. Um, they took up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan. Uh, they carried them over with them to the lodging place and put them down there. Well, what's the lodging place? Look at 19, verse 19. The people came up from the Jordan on the 10th of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the eastern edge of Jericho. Those 12 stones which they had taken from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. So at Gilgal, where they're camping, they got 12 stones piled up. Okay? Uh, one writer, Paul N., says that the stones at Gilgal were piled up to show what had happened, okay? Um, now, if you look at verse 9, it says, then here's the second pile of stones. Then Joshua set up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan at the place where the feet of the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing. And they are there to this day. Um, and that corresponds with verse 18. So apparently you had two piles. You had a pile of 12 stones in the middle where they crossed, and then you had a pile where they camped. Now, here's why they piled up the second pile in the middle of the Jordan. They did that in order to show where it happened. Okay? So where they camped at Gilgal, it's so they can show what happened and I'll explain this in a minute, they did it in the middle of the river because that's where it happened. Now, let me explain this. Verse 6, let this be a sign among you in Joshua 4. Let what be a sign? The 12 stones piled up. So that when your children ask later, saying, what do these stones mean to you? You shall say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones, watch this, shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. Those stones were set up so that then when the kids are throwing the ball, when the kids are out running around, and the little kids say, hey, those 12, hey, hey, Dad, those 12 stones? What's the deal with those 12 stones? See, so that when your children ask, oh, well, let me tell you about the 12 stone thing. You see that river? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, let me tell you something. God opened that river. And you know how we won't let you get near the river? Other times you can, in the summer, we'll go down, but certain times we won't even get you, let you get close? Yeah. Well, when it's the worst time, we crossed. And God opened it up and shot that water back 18 miles. And he dried it, and we crossed. Yeah, you were, just, you were just a little guy. I carried you right across. You're kidding. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. That's what God... That really happened. That happened. I was there. I saw it. I was holding you. Nobody drowned. We all made it. That's unbelievable. It's believable. You see, it was a teaching device. And then, so he's telling that to his son, and then, and then his son grows up and gets married and has kids, and one day his kids are out running around. Oh, hey, Dad. Hey, Dad. What's the deal with the stones? Well, let me tell you about that. God opened it. And let me tell you, I was there. I was just a little guy, but my dad carried me across. Grandpa carried me across. You're kidding. Well, I don't remember it. I was too little to remember. But my dad carried me across. That's unbelievable. No, actually, it's believable because he's our God. His arm is not too short that it cannot save. 
You see, it's a, it's a teaching device to teach each generation the greatness of God and to teach the generation to come and the generation to come and the generation to come. Is that not, isn't that not wonderful? The stones were there to teach the coming generations of the faithfulness of God. Because you see, um, all of us sitting here in this room, um, you're here tonight, you're going to die. Just wanted to encourage you. <laughs> you're going to die, and you know you're going to die. And then your kids are going to come along, and then, and then, and then and unless Jesus comes back, and we're all for that. Sooner the better. But until he comes back, generations live and generations die. And then that generation dies. And then that generation dies. And a new one comes up. You get this. It's the handing of the baton. The purpose of the stones was to show the faithfulness of God to all generations. Flip over to... Uh, yeah, let me see if I can find it. How about Psalm 78? Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your, your ears to the word of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from our children but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wondrous works that He has done. For He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers, that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children, that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Nothing we can do about past generations. All we can take care of is our stuff and our business. You see? And each succeeding generation has got to come to grips. And, and, and usually as we're coming up and, and we're young guys and full of testosterone and all kinds of steam and stuff, we're going to, oh, yeah, I've heard, okay, well, I'm not going there. I'm going over here. I'm peeling off over here. I'm going over there. And you do that for a while, and then you get beat up and you fracture your skull and your brain and everything else, and something happens. And you wind up in a ditch, and everything you were going to construct and everything you were going to do falls apart and uh, you got nowhere to go except call on the God of your fathers. It's the best day of your life. So now, you see, when I am weak, then I am strong. We call out to him. You ever heard that thing guys will say Christians are weak? Ah, you, you Christians, you just need a crutch. I had a guy tell me that one time. You just need a crutch. I said, I don't need a crutch. I need a stretcher. I'm just telling you, I need a stretcher. I'm sick. I need a lot of help. What did Jesus say? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing that counts eternally. We can do stuff. It doesn't have eternal value until he comes into our lives and gets our hearts and gets our minds and our wills, and we start following him. Now we're going to be productive. Now our lives are going to count for something. Now we've been redeemed. Now we can tell the truth about God to those around us who we love, to those who we've hurt and injured and perhaps disappointed. But now he's in our lives, so we're new. Everything changes. Everything changes. It's the glory of the gospel and the glory of Christ. So that's what the stones are about. Um, So here's, here's, here's what I wish I had to put in point, man, and I didn't. Because in Scripture, there are certain things, and we just read it in Psalm 78, there are certain things that fathers are to teach their children. Um, uh, Deuteronomy 6 is about what fathers and grandfathers should teach the children. We looked at this, we've looked at this in the last couple of weeks. 
Um, we all have memorial stones in our lives. And these are tremendous teaching tools that can be used. You know, kids love stories. And they love to hear stories. I, I remember, I'm, I'm, I was the oldest of, of, of uh, three boys. I was also the smartest and the best looking. Uh, uh, had some ego issues I had to work through. But uh, they were ugly. There was no question about it, Jeff and Mike. But anyway, uh, we'd be hang- you know, we loved to hang out with our dad, and we loved it when our dad would come in and put us to bed. And because uh, we never, you know, the thing, about, the thing about kids, they never want to go to bed, right? Little kids never want to go to bed. Now, what is the goal of the parent? To make them go to bed as quickly, as effectively as possible. But you see, they don't want to go to bed. So when you got, when you got little kids, you know, th- think about this sometimes. We're always, you know, there's this old debate about quality time versus quantity time. We're all busy. We're all trying to make a living, raise our kids. And this debate comes up, uh, quality time versus quantity time. Well, we don't have much, uh, we don't have much time. I'll admit that. We don't have much time in our family. I don't get a lot of time with my kids. But by golly, what we have is quality. No, it isn't. You can't schedule quality time. You can only schedule quantity time. Kids, grandkids. You can schedule quantity time, but most of life is just life. You're just living life. But every once in a while, all of a sudden you realize, in the midst of quantity time, you realize all of a sudden we're in quality time. See, the thing is, you never know when quality time is going to show up. This is why if you've got little kids or little grandkids, when they, when they want to stay up, go hang out. They don't want to go. I mean, you know, what's the rush? And sometimes, and sometimes they just need to go to sleep. They're tired and they've been up a while. But there are times when something will come up and you just go in there. And I, I'd go in there and talk to them. And, you know, a lot of times it's, let's get to bed, guys. But there, and then someone would say, one of my kids would say something. And sometimes they'd say, hey, Dad, tell us a story when you were, when you were a kid. Come on, Dad. Nah, I don't know. Come on, Dad, tell us a story. Yeah, yeah, tell us a story. We'd say that to my dad, all three of us. Dad, come on, tell us a story when you were little. I remember my dad telling us about when they lived in Colorado. My, my grandpa was a pastor, and they were always moving around. And I remember my dad, I'll never forget this story. My dad was telling me about living in Colorado in the snow, and I'd never seen snow because I lived in California. And you lived in the snow. Yeah, we had snow. And man, the snow was so high. And, and we had a shed up on this hill behind our house. And that's where we kept the firewood. And when we ran out of firewood, I'd go up there with Uncle Joe. And we had a sled. And we put the firewood, we'd stack it up, and then we'd get on this sled, and then we'd, and then we'd go all the way down to the house. I thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever heard of. I must have had my dad tell me that story, I don't know, a hundred times. And every time he told it, it got better. (laughs) You know how that works. You know, eventually they left the door open and they slid into the living room and, you know, I don't know. It was was a darn good story. Kids love stories. Tell your kids about the stones. Here's a story I remember. I remember my dad telling me when I was a little guy, and he was working the graveyard shift at an oil refinery in Bakersfield, California, and up, up on the bluffs where they built Bakersfield College, you go down, I mean, it's steep, and you go down those bluffs to that refinery. And my dad said, you, you know, we go down there when we go to Hart Park? Yeah, yeah. I was going down there at night, and I was so tired I couldn't even see straight. And it's a very narrow two-lane road. And I mean, it's a drop, 100, 200, 300 feet. And he said, Steve, I was so tired, and I'm driving, and I fell asleep. 
and I wake up, and there's a truck coming right at me. And I've got nowhere to go except over. And all I could say was, Jesus. And all I can tell you is, I didn't hit the truck, and I didn't go over. I don't know what happened. Now, he must have told me that when I was four years old. And I, I have never forgotten it, and I'm telling it to you guys 60 years later, of the faithfulness of God. My dad, did, my dad never did know what happened, except God delivered him. Well, 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 no, wait a minute. How could that be? I don't know. But if God can get you through 150 feet of water that's a mile wide, he can get you through a truck with rock on this side and a drop. I don't know, but he's God. I never forgot that. What has God done for you? You've got the memorial stones. You've got them in your life. Tell the stories. Hey, Dad, tell us a story. Or, but you've got to look for the memorial stones. There's a memorial stone for our family in Coppell, Texas, before we moved there. We were at my brother Mike's house, and we, we had our kids and Mike's kids and in the pool most of the afternoon and uh, ordered pizza, and there was some babysitter coming on. We were going to go see a movie, and the four of us, and all the kids, you know, were, okay. I changed Josh's diaper. He was about, he was two years old. I changed his diaper, and we're trying to get out of there to go see Top Gun, okay? Um, I changed his diaper, and then I'm walking in to talk with Mary or something, and, and then I hear the other kids down the hallway. How many? Uh, two, five other kids, two of mine, three of Mike's. And they all start screaming. I thought, what the heck's going on? So I go down to see what's going on, and I'm there maybe two minutes, just whatever it was, and calming them down. And we're trying to get out to go to a movie. I turn around to walk down the hall so we can get out of here and go to the movie. And I'm walking down the hall, and I'm thinking about the movie, and we've got to get out of here. And all of a sudden, it came to my mind, where's Josh? Just like that. Where's Josh? Now, i just seen him two minutes before. I just changed his diaper. But at that moment, where's Josh? He wasn't in there. See in the kitchen? I looked. And then I looked out those glass doors to the pool, and I saw him in the bottom of the pool. And I went, I yelled for my brother. I went, Mike! As, much louder than that, because I didn't know where Mike was. I just yelled, and I ran and sprinted and just went into the water, reached down, grabbed him, and brought him up like that. And he spit water and started crying. And then I spit water and started crying. <laughs> Josh knows that story. Uh, he could have, that could have been the end of his life. But God spared him. That house, which we lived just a mile later, we moved to Coppell and lived a mile from that house. And every time we go by Mike's street, what do you think Josh thought about? God's got something for you to do, Josh. He's got a plan for you. It's not done yet, is it, man? God was faithful to you. I grew up in this uh, town called Bakersfield, California. And we were, we, t we took a trip to the West Coast. Everybody was in the suburban. We're driving to the Bay Area. See my folks, they lived there at the time. And we went through Bakersfield, and I'm showing my kids where I went to school. I'm showing them the houses I lived in. My dad was a real estate broker and general contractor. My dad, we, we moved uh, frequently, but I never changed schools. Because my dad would build a new house, and we'd move into it, and then he'd put a sign up to flip it. And uh, we might be there a year. We might be there 18 months. One time, uh, we were in a house, uh, we were in a house a week. And we moved next door. I thought, it, we thought it was great. 
I'm not sure my mom was real high on that, but we thought it, I mean, the way my dad painted it, it was an adventure. And we never changed schools. And it was a joke. My friends, yeah, come on by. Where do you live? Where do you live this month? And we always just lived down the street. It was kind of fun. Anyway. But I'm showing my kids my, and they said, Dad, gosh, man, you moved all the time. I said, yeah, we thought it was fun. And then we pulled up on Kingston Drive. And I said, you see that house up on that hill, right up that steep driveway? Yeah. You see that window on the corner? They said, yeah. I said, it was in there. I became a Christian. They said, really? And I go, yeah. How old were you, Dad? I was seven. You were seven? I know. Well, how'd you become a Christian? Well, Uncle Joe, he had his family and his kids, and everybody was over, and it was some big deal, and barbecue. And then they put us all to bed. And then Aunt Mary, you know how she could really play the piano, and my dad and Uncle Joe liked to sing, and they used to be in a group together, and my mom was there. Well, they all, they put us to bed, and then they started playing these songs they used to sing when they were in a music group together and traveled around with Christian college. And I'm in bed, and I'm listening. I didn't want to go to sleep. I'm seven years old. And, uh, and all of a sudden, I start listening to the words of the songs they're singing. And what happened to me was that I became deeply convicted of my sin. You say, at seven? At seven. I'm telling you, I became convicted. And I began to cry. And I'm listening to the words of these songs. And I finally got up, and I opened the door, and I walked in, and my dad saw me. He said, get in bed now, in his tender, merciful spirit. <laughs> but it's what I usually did. I was, you know. And then he saw I was crying, and he said, what's wrong, Steve? And I said, Dad, I, I've been, I want to become a Christian. I said, I've been listening to the songs. So my dad it's the grace of God. It's sheer grace. So my mom and dad came in. And my dad just explained it to me. The gospel. And he knew the Spirit of God was work. And we knelt down by that bed, and I prayed with my mom and dad. I mean, it, it, it took... I'm telling my kids, right there in that room, I mean, some of you guys didn't come to know Christ till later. Why did I come at seven? I don't know. You got me? I don't know. And you don't know. We don't know. Some things we don't know. The secret things, what is it? Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. There are questions we won't know on this earth. It, but I'll tell you this, whether you're 27 or 47 or 77 or 7, it's the grace of God. But tell them the story. Tell them the story. Am I boring, you guys? So you know what these are? These are memorial stones to the faithfulness of God. One man wrote these words. I remember dad going off to speak in a tiny church and coming home 10 days later. His dad was an evangelist back in the 40s and 50s. I remember dad going off to speak in a tiny church and coming home 10 days later. My mother greeted him warmly and asked how the revival had gone. And my dad was always excited about that subject. Eventually, in moments like this, after hearing the report of how God had worked in the little revival at the church, she would get around to asking him about the offering. 
because, see, the way that he was supported was by what they called love offerings. So she would ask, what about the offering? And he says, you know, women have a way of worrying about things like that. And she'd look at my dad and say, how much did they pay you? I can still see my dad's face as he smiled and looked at the floor. Well, um, he stammered. My mom stepped back and looked into his eyes. She said, oh, I get it. You gave the money away again, didn't you? Mert, he said, the pastor there is going through a hard time. His kids are so needy, it just broke my heart. They have holes in their shoes, and one of them is going to school without a coat. I felt I had to give the entire $50 to them. My mom looked intently at him for a moment, and she smiled, and she said, you know, if God told you to do it, it's okay with me. Then a few days later, the inevitable happened. We ran completely out of money. There was no reserve to tide us over. That's when my dad gathered us in the bedroom for a time of prayer. I remember that day as though it were yesterday. And my dad would pray first, Oh, Lord, you promised that if we would be faithful with you and your people in our good times, then you would not forget us in our time of need. We've tried to be generous with what you have given us, and now we are calling on you for your help. A very impressionable 10-year-old boy named Jimmy was watching and listening very carefully that day. What will happen, he wondered. Did God hear my dad's prayer? And then the next day, an unexpected check for $1,200 came for us in the mail. That's the way it happened, not just this once, but many times I saw the Lord match my dad's giving stride for stride. No, God never made us wealthy, but my young faith grew by leaps and bounds. I learned that you cannot give out God, James Dobson wrote. Uh, that's a memorial stone, is it not? A young man who'd been raised in a Christian home. I'm going to give you another one. A young man raised in a Christian home, Christian grandparents, Christian both sides all the way up, in a Christian college, didn't want to be there. Just wanted to live the way he wanted to live. Found out about an opportunity to go into a foreign land. He, he didn't want to do a missions thing. He just wanted to, he wanted to see what was going on, and they needed a vehicle, and it worked out where he could deliver a vehicle. So he's driving to this little mission in the middle of the Middle East and sipping Jack Daniels as he's driving. Um, he meets these two ladies, stays with them for a while in their little work. And, and he was amazed by them because they had no visible means of support. And as they would often gather around the evening meal, they would not only thank God for the food, but they would mention a specific need to God and ask him to send it in. And uh, they didn't have a newsletter. They didn't make appeals. It just kind of, it kind of shocked him. And he tells this one story that he remembers on Friday, Eleanor asked that we pray for the Lord to provide funds to pay a medicine bill from a company in Sweden. I, I recall her prayer. It went something like, Lord, you know we don't have the $1,355, but this is your hospital. Your name is on the line, not ours. If this bill doesn't get paid, it's your name that gets discredited. If it, if it pleases you, Lord, and if it be your will, would you please provide for this need? Amen. He writes, I tried hard not to be cynical because I couldn't believe the money would come in if no one on the outside knew about the need. If they would just let their needs be known, maybe someone would care enough to help. I'd grown to love these women. I didn't want to see them hurt, but I completely missed the point. They had already told someone. <laughs> the, next morning, uh, the next Monday, an envelope arrived containing a handwritten note which read, I have heard about the wonderful work you were doing there. And you have been in my thoughts. I had some extra money, and I wanted to send it to you. Enclosed as a check. Use it any way you see fit. The check was for $1,355. And Franklin Graham never forgot that. 
as he was in rebellion to God. Now, God, you know, God does certain things. Sometimes we're in financial need, and God will make a provision. Tell the story. That's a memorial stone. Or sometime, sometime in your life, you have had a plan, and you had a goal, and you had a dream, and you were moving towards it, and then God obliterated and dashed it and uh, killed it. And, and you struggled with deep disappointment, and then God redirected your steps and made a way and did something remarkable in your life that you never conceived of. Uh, how many of you guys that's happened to? Can I see your hands? Okay, a, a number. Uh, can I say this to you? Tell the story. Tell the kids, tell the grandkids. Because is it not true that at some point in their lives, they're going to do the same thing? Their dreams, their hopes are going to be dashed. They're going to wonder, where God, why would you allow this God? Why, why, why? And then, but they'll remember how God intervened for their dad or for their grandpa. And you're off the earth. Tell the story, guys. Tell the story. You don't have to see sometimes, man, I, you know, I'm not, a, I'm, not a, I'm not a Bible teacher. You know, I, I can't do what Chuck does or some of these great guys. In the, man, I can't do that. You can tell your story. Some of you guys are great storytellers. Why don't you tell one that's true? <laughs> right? I mean, there's some great stories, and we have fun with stories. But, man, tell them the goodness of God. Tell them the greatness of God. They'll never forget, and it's a memorial stone. And then you know what they'll do? You're dead and gone. And I'm going to tell you, they're going to tell it to their kids. Hey, my dad is, my dad is with the Lord. What did I just I just told you a story. My kids know that story. Tell them the stories. You guys know that I've been on kind of a journey with a book to young men. And if you don't know, let me just sum this up. I agreed three years ago to do two books, and I knew at some point I wanted to write a book called Manna three years ago. Now, you say, you just taught that in the fall. Yeah, I did. But I've been thinking about it for a long, long time, pondering it. But I also had been approached, and forgive me, some of you guys have heard this. I'd also been approached on several fronts. Steve, you ought to write like an updated point man for young guys. Because young generations, it's a different generation. A lot of them are struggling, having a hard time. And I didn't really want to write it. It kept coming up. Finally, I said, okay. Uh, agreed to a contract. They wanted that book first, the young man book. I start writing it. I'm writing. I got, I got stacks of stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm putting in hours. I can't get my wheels under me. I just, I know I'm not hitting it. And um, how long ago now? A year ago, November, Thanksgiving. And again, I apologize. Some of you have heard some of this. At Thanksgiving, my son Josh is asking me, Dad, how's that point man for young guys coming? I said, not, not real well, Josh. He'd been really busy in school and finishing a master's and working two jobs, actually three jobs, so we hadn't talked much. He said, Dad, how is that coming? I said, Josh, I can't get my wheels under me, and I'm actually going to take it a different way because i got to hand it in in like two months, and I'm just, I'm going to do this. He goes, really? He said, I read, Dad, the original outline was good. I said, yeah, but I, can't, I just can't pull it off. And he called me the next day, and he said, Dad, I've been thinking all day about this. You need to say five things to these guys. And by the time he got to number three, I knew he needed to write the book with me. And I was going up there the next week, so I took him with me. We sat down with the publisher. I said, I want Josh to tell you what he told me. And they listened, and they agreed. He needs to write the book with you. So we're going to do a co-author thing, all right? Can you write this in four months? And the answer was no, but we said yeah. Because <laughs> we, figured, we figured we were just going to rework what I had done. But when we got into what I had done, you know how sometimes you think, well, we'll just remodel the kitchen? 
and then you tear the whole house down to the studs. That's what happened. And, but we got it in. We, we hit the deadline, and he wrote the first half, and I wrote the second half. And the day before we turned it in, I said, let's print everything, Josh. I'm going to get up in the morning, and I'm going to read it all the way through. He had the first four chapters. I had the la- first four or five. I had the last half. I read his stuff. I turn. I start reading mine. And when I got to my stuff, it was like reading Czechoslovakian. I mean, it wasn't bad, but as he said, I'm one of them. He gets it. He understands it. He had a crisis of faith. So many young guys are disillusioned who have been raised in Christian homes. So many young guys are cynical. So many young guys don't think they can believe. They're confused. They're overwhelmed. And, and I'm reading his stuff, and I'm looking at mine, and I'm thinking, you know what? This can't, I can't. He needs to write the whole thing. So once again, we go up to meet with the publisher, and I said, look it, you see this stuff? He needs to write the whole thing. This needs to be in his voice. Well, okay. Uh, all right, well, let's give it a shot. Why don't you get to work? And they gave him a deadline of... Um, February 15th, what, a few weeks ago? He's working, his, I'm watching him, he's working his tail off. And he's coming, and, and usually when you write a book, here's usually how it works. You think about something for quite a while, you study it, you know, you get your notes, you got, you've been, worked it through. And then if they say write it in four months, well, you've had three, four, five years of thinking and studying, and you just put it on paper. But what we did was kind of threw Josh in the deep end and said, figure this out. And he's worked extremely hard, and he, got, he was getting to the end, and he said, Dad, I'm not going to finish this thing. And, 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 we, and I was reading everything he was writing. And uh, I said, okay, well, I said, you know, you don't want to slop something together. And there's, he said, I still got to do this, and I got to do this. And this whole book morphed into dealing with disillusionment and cynicism and despair. Because young men... Young men will kill themselves. You know it and I know it. And I said, just, it's all right, just send it in. Um, in the interim, last fall, am I boring you? So last fall, and some of you know this, we start this, I don't know, whenever we started, in the fall after Labor Day. I'm going to teach, if you had asked me that morning, what are you teaching on tonight? I would have said, I'm doing this. But my editor, the same editor, said, hey, Steve, you know, we've given you an extension on another one. When do you think you could do that manna book? I said, when do you need it? He said, January 1. I said, what if I taught it in my Wednesday Bible study? And then as I teach it, because I got a lot of it together, but let me teach through it, and then, yeah, I can do that. I told Mary, she couldn't believe it. I think she said idiot in Greek, (laughs) or whatever she called me. It was stupid. And I said, okay. And somehow, by God's grace, I got it in. I got it into him January 1, as I taught through it here. Okay. We go up there yesterday to meet with him. And here's the issue. I sent my stuff in, haven't heard a word from him. Since January 1. Josh sent his stuff in, hasn't heard a word. And when you've never sent anything in to a publisher and you don't hear a word, you assume it's terrible. And they don't like it and they don't want it. So he's thinking all these thoughts. And then we realize, you know what? Um, there's no way they're going to give more time, so it can't be published this way. We're probably going to have to um, get out of the contract and find another publisher. Josh is thinking this. Um, I said, well, you got to do it right. You can't slop it. you got to do it right. It's too critical. And if they can't do it, they can't do it. God will make a way. But there's no way, Dad, they're going to do this. And I said, yeah, well, let's just go up there and see what happens. And the other thing is, all this stuff, it's his stuff, and he has no contract with them because it's on my contract, and it's morphed. You get it? And the copyright's going to be in my name. I didn't write that stuff. 
He wrote it. Um, we go up there. We walk in there at 9 o'clock, and Joel's there, and he's got Josh's manuscript, the spiral-bound copy, Josh sent him. How you doing? Good to see you. He looked at us. He picked up that Josh's manuscript, and he said, we've got a book. This is a book. This is great stuff, Josh. Now, and, and then immediately he said, but Steve, I'm surprised it's just in Josh's voice. This guy's busy, and he's been given other assignments on top of, that's why we hadn't heard from him. Um, good guy. He said, Steve, there's no voice. I thought your voice would be in here somewhere. I said, I got nothing to say, Joel. I said, how can I, did you read this? He goes, it's great stuff. I said, I can't do that. So why should I? I said, let me write the foreword or something. <laughs> he said, well, that'd be good. You can kind of hand, like, hand the baton. I said, yeah. I said, Josh, you already wrote a foreword. You got that foreword, Josh? That Josh had written a year and a half, and he read it to him. He goes, that's perfect. Let's stick that in there. Uh, he said, now, we got another problem because, see, we contracted this, and the payments and all that were based that we know you and you're a known entity, and you sold this many books and done all this, and all our performers were based on that. And this is phenomenal stuff, but nobody knows Josh. I said, yeah. And he said, so how do we market this? And this was great. Josh said, wasn't well, that your job? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, yeah, but pu Christian publishing has changed because there used to be 6,500 Christian bookstores, and now there's about 6,800, and that's it. And everything's shifted, and it's true. And he said, there's got to be some kind of web presence. There's got to be some kind of way of, and see, and I said, you know, Joel, what's really wild is that when we signed this agreement, I didn't even have a web presence. But what's happened in the last 18, 19, 20 months is that God has done some amazing things, and suddenly we got it, and we're getting letters from South Africa and this place and New Zealand and Germany and all this, and suddenly, guys, this thing they're listening to from all over, and he said, that's incredible. I said, you don't know how incredible it is, and we're getting ready to expand it and do some more video, and God just keeps sending friends to help and supply, and it's just, and he goes, well, that changes everything. He said, okay, let's go. I said, I need the copyright in his name, not mine. It's his book, not mine. He said, okay, well, that's just a paragraph addendum. I'm going to tell you something. Oh, and then he said, Josh, how much time do you need to finish this? Because you haven't gotten to this. He goes, no, I haven't. And he said, how much time do you need? Josh said, I need a year. He said, I wish I could give you six months. Josh said, I can't slop it together because, I, and he says, I get it. You're having to work this as you're writing. I get that. He said, Steve, the man of book. Yeah, what if we release that first? Let's do it. He said, so, and then he stands up. If we, re, this is, if we release that next April, a year from now, I already knew a sequence. He said, and then we don't want to release, he said, Josh, you got 13 months. I'm going to tell you something. What we had been concerned and praying about, I've been seeing coming for eight months. In less than 15 minutes, God took care of everything. Everything. He took care of it all. Just, it was like, you know what it was like? It was like crossing the Red Sea. All these huge obstacles. If we just had got hung up on one, it wouldn't have happened, but it just. It was amazing. And then we talked for two hours just sorting out details. One of the most remarkable things I've ever seen. I, would, I, I think it's in my top five that I've ever seen God do providentially. And I got some stories, as you do. I, I think it's right up in the top five. So Josh and I fly home, get in the car, 
And we're driving to the house, and I said, hey, I've got to make one stop at Costco. I've got to get gas, because it says I have a mile left in the tank. <laughs> and I did. I had a mile left. I said, let me get gas, and I've got to run into Costco. So we get gas, I run over to Costco. We're walking in. He says, what are, you, what are you getting? And I said, I don't even know if they have it. And we walked in, and see, two weeks before, it was all clogged up in the entrance, and I'm trying to get around, so I go by, I'm taking a shortcut, and I go by the, they got these watches, and I go by the watch, I never go by the watches. I go by the watch section to get around the traffic jam, and, uh, and I look, and I see this watch that looked like the watch Josh used to have that he was given when he got married. And I did a double take. That's that watch that he had lost, strap broke. He went to get a needle nose thing at work to fix it, came back, someone had lifted it. I'd been there a couple weeks ago, and I looked, and I said, that's that watch. And I think that's Josh's watch. Anyway, never thought about it again until we're driving home yesterday. I got to run into Costco. So we walk in there, and he says, and, I, and he said, what are you going to get? I said, I think it's, look at that. He goes, that watch? And I go, yeah. He goes, that's, I said, isn't that the watch you had? He goes, yeah. He goes, actually, it's got that silver thing, but it's its cousin. He said, actually, it's better. I said, yeah? He said, yeah. Let's get it. And we did. You know why I did that? Every time he looks at that watch, it's a memorial stone to what God did that morning that changed his whole life. Every time he looks at that watch, it's the faithfulness of God. And then down the road, when they have kids, because Mary's spiking their water with fertility <laughs> drugs, <laughs> and his little boy or little girl says, hey, Daddy, where'd you get that watch? I got it at Costco <laughs> on one of the greatest days of my life when God made a way where there was no way. Tell the stories. We thank you, Father, for your greatness, your grace, your mercy, your kindness. Every one of us have got the stories. How good you are to us, how kind you are. You come through at the last minute, you slay the giants. We're scared to death, we're sick with worry, and you step in and deliver us. And we honor your name. And love you for it. Hmm. Don't let us forget the stories. Let us pile up the stones and give you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.